A great big welcome, everyone, to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode Number 6. Our final episode of Season Number 5 to round out our summer podcast series for the summer of 2023. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for the hair loss practitioner, and it was created for all those who wish to dive in to this fascinating world of hair loss. Each week, I review a handful of studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, help you make sense of them, and give you my thoughts on how a given study just might change how we think about hair loss. These are studies in all different types of hair loss. Androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata, telogen effluvium, scarring alopecia, tinea capitis, trichotillomania, chemotherapy-induced hair loss. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created by the Donovan Hair Academy and was created to help all those who help all those with hair loss. And it was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. Today, it's my great pleasure to review five studies with you. And for those of you who want a brief 10-minute overview, a mini-podcast within our longer podcast, well, we'll begin that in under 30 seconds. And for those of you who want a bit more detail, detail that helps you incorporate all these studies into your own practice, well, you and I will dive into those together. Thanks so much for joining me today, and thanks so much for joining me this past season. The fourth Monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of topics, and today I'd like to review with you five very interesting studies that have been published in the last month or two. Do you know what happens when you're deficient in vitamins and minerals? What happens to patients when you're deficient in iron or biotin or zinc? But do you know what happens when you have too much of something? Chivas and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology from August review with us what happens when you have too much selenium. They present a really interesting report of a patient who obtained too much selenium from both a supplement and eating too many nuts. She lost about 50% of her hair. She had changes in her nails, including hyperkeratosis, onycholysis. And when she stopped her supplement and stopped eating so many nuts, her hair and nails improved. A really nice study. I like this a lot, and we'll dive into the literature on selenium toxicity and talk about some other very interesting reports. Selenium toxicity leads to changes in the hair and nails, as well as other changes. We only need 55 micrograms of selenium a day, and a well-balanced diet provides that, and we don't need more. I look forward to reviewing that with you. Then we'll move on to a study of desmoplastic melanoma. Do you have in your mind a list of conditions that mimic patchy alopecia areata when a patient presents with a single patch of hair loss? What do you think about when that patch doesn't grow back with topical steroids or steroid injections that you expect it to grow back with if you're treating alopecia areata? Well, you probably have on your list tinea capitis, trichotillomania, scarring alopecia, but do you have on your list cancer? Do you have on your list both primary cancer that works its way into the hair follicle and destroys it? That's what we call primary alopecia neoplastica. Or do you have on your list metastatic cancer from organs like breast cancer, lung cancer, kidney cancer that metastasizes to the skin and obliterates the hair follicle? We call that secondary alopecia neoplastica. Well, a really nice study by Lamanika and colleagues in JAD case reports in August presents a case of desmoplastic malignant melanoma in a patient who had a history of pilar cysts and had these surgically removed and so had a reason to have scars on the scalp and presents with a patch of hair loss which didn't seem to improve with topical steroids that the family physician prescribed. The patient was referred to dermatology, and a very astute dermatologist did a biopsy, and it turned out to be desmoplastic malignant melanoma. Really interesting case. I like this a lot. 
desmoplastic melanoma is, is challenging to diagnose. It looks like a scar. We think of melanoma as a pigmented lesion with many colors of black and brown and an abnormal border, an asymmetrical. But desmoplastic melanoma and many types of melanoma can be amelanonic, meaning that they're not pigmented. And desmoplastic melanoma in particular is challenging to diagnose because it looks like a scar. And in this patient, the patient had reason to have scars. The patient had a history of pilar cysts, these cysts that are so common on the scalp, and had them removed. And it was a the very astute dermatologist that said, we need to do a biopsy of this. And so we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about the concept of alopecia neoplastica. Very important topic. I really liked this study. And then we'll go on to talk about eyebrow hair loss. What works better for treating eyebrow thinning? Minoxidil? Bimatoprost? Well, a study by Zaki and colleagues in Archives of Dermatologic Research, July 2023, reviews with us a randomized controlled trial comparing 2% minoxidil once a day compared to bimatoprost 0.01% versus 0.03% bimatoprost. The winner? All three are pretty much the same. Patients tended to like bimatoprost 0.03% slightly more, but in terms of its ability to grow eyebrows or improve eyebrow thickness, the authors found similar results in all three of these groups. And so we'll talk about this. Eyebrow thinning is a very important part of a hair loss clinic and issues that I deal with every day, not only eyebrow thinning over time, but eyebrow thinning in the context of alopecia areata, eyebrow thinning in the context of scarring alopecia. And so really important to have tools for addressing eyebrow thinning. And here in age-related eyebrow thinning, we have some nice data which supports prior literature suggesting that Minoxidil and bimatoprost are somewhat similar. If I tell you that a patient in the next room that you're about to go into has two rows of eyelashes and swelling in the legs, is there a condition that you think of? Well, at the end of the podcast, I hope that you'll come to see that this could be lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome. This is a genetic condition due to mutations in FOXC2. It's an autosomal dominant condition with variable penetrance, but it leads to a double roll of eyelashes as well as swelling in the legs. That's lymphedema that's usually present by the 30s. And we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this particular syndrome, lymphedema diastachiasis. Diastachiasis is a term that we don't talk about a lot. Di means two, and stachiasis means row. So there's two rows of eyelashes. And that comes about via a process of metaplasia. The second row of eyelashes comes out of the Mybomium glands. And metaplasia is this process whereby one type of mature tissue is replaced by another type of mature tissue. And we'll talk about the concept of metaplasia and this interesting syndrome. And finally, we'll talk about seasonal shedding, a subject that I really enjoy reading about. If you or your family or your patients or your neighbor is experiencing more shedding at this time of year and you live north of the equator, you very well may have seasonal shedding. Now, you could have hair loss from stress, low iron, a diet that you're on, a thyroid problem, some new medication you started, of course. But this is the time of year where seasonal shedding is at its peak. And we'll review a, a nice study by Bontempo and colleagues in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology from July, where they looked at Google Trends with the word hair loss. And they found that people seem to be punching in the word hair loss quite remarkably in August of every year. 
The second place winter is September. Third place is July. But there's something very special about July, August, and September that people are worried about hair loss every single year. And the year and the month that they're the least concerned, April. And so we'll take a look at this concept of seasonal shedding, and I'll introduce you to six studies that have been published in the literature dealing with seasonal shedding, and we'll talk about these. And they all come to a very similar conclusion, that in human beings, August, July, September, these are the months where humans shed. And I think it's really important to look back at these six studies. Some of them are wonderful studies, very elegant studies, classic studies in our hair world. Important to know about them. The references for all of these studies will be in the show notes that accompany this episode. We begin by a study by Chivas and Akpinar titled Selenium in the Supplement as the Probable Cause of Hair Loss and Nail Dystrophy, Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. Really liked this report. Selenium is an essential mineral. We need to get selenium from food that we take in. Fortunately, we don't need all that much. We need 55 micrograms. Selenium is a cofactor for enzymes. Glutathione peroxidase, thioredoxin, reductase. And so it has a key role in blocking oxidative stress. Selenium supplements are very popular. Many people think that taking selenium supplements is the answer to hair loss, just as they feel that taking biotin supplements is the answer to hair loss. And as we've reviewed many times in the past, there's no great evidence for this for the vast majority of patients. There are exceptions. The recommended daily allowance of selenium is 55 micrograms. But selenium has a narrow therapeutic window, meaning that if you take just a little bit more, you can actually enter a range where selenium becomes toxic. And it's often said that we should avoid going over 400 micrograms of selenium to avoid toxicity. It's easy to get 400 micrograms, which we'll see in just a minute. The symptoms of selenium toxicity, which is known as selenosis, includes nausea, vomiting, fatigue, Abnormalities of the nervous system, like paresthesias, hyperreflexia, pain in the extremities, and garlic-smelling breath. Dermatologic manifestations of selenosis include nail discoloration, brittleness, nail loss, skin ulcerations, and hair loss in the form of hair shedding. Now, certain foods are known to be rich in selenium. The gold medalist of selenium-rich foods is Brazil nuts. A single Brazil nut is packed with almost 100 micrograms of selenium. So you take four and you're at your toxic level. If you take 10, you're dramatically over your toxic level. And as many patients tell me, who can eat just one Brazil nut? Other foods are rich in selenium as well. Three ounces of salmon has 41 micrograms. A cup of whole wheat pasta has 43. So there's 12 large shrimp, a cup of tofu, a cup of cooked rice, a cup of shiitake mushrooms. Just by eating any of those food groups, you've pretty much met your daily requirements. Skim milk, walnuts, chicken, has selenium as well. But there's many food groups with selenium. But in general, it's thought that the amount of selenium that a person can get in his or her diet is sufficient. And it means that we don't need to take selenium supplements. Provided a person's eating vegetables, some nuts, grains, meats, just a diverse diet, you'll be fine. A very interesting study from 2010 is worth looking at. A study by McFacker and colleagues titled Acute Selenium Toxicity Associated with a Dietary Supplement. This is a really interesting paper in the Archives of Internal Medicine. 
just like to spend a moment on it, and then we'll dive in to our current study. Macfacuar published this very nice study whereby, due to a worker error at a plant making a supplement, selenium was put into a dietary product at 200 times the level that it should be. And many patients got sick. The FDA got involved. And so it was employee error at the manufacturing plant that led to this supplement going out into the real world with 200 times more selenium than it should have. The product was labeled as having just 200 micrograms of selenium per ounce, but when the FDA got involved and measured it, it had 40,000 micrograms per ounce, so 200 times more than it should. There were detailed telephone interviews identifying who received this product, what side effects did patients get. And there was 201 people that had selenium poisoning from this error. And it was estimated that the median dose of selenium that was consumed each day was dramatically over the 55 micrograms that we all need. And the median dose was 41,000 micrograms. The blood selenium concentrations were at a mean of 761 micrograms per liter. The normal is around 100, 100 to 200, but these patients had a mean of 761 micrograms per liter. Hair loss was one of the top three symptoms in those patients. Diarrhea was number one in 78% of patients. Fatigue number two, 72%. Hair loss in 70% of patients. But a whole range of symptoms occurred, and this was uncovered via those telephone interviews. There was joint pain, there was nail discoloration, nail brittleness, headaches, nausea, foul breath, fever, skin eruptions. The amount of hair loss in patients overdosing on selenium ranged from 10% to 100%. But half of patients had less than 50% hair loss. Half of patients had more than 50% hair loss. And of the 78 patients that had hair loss, 18% of them had almost complete hair loss. 1% of patients had total body hair loss. So now we come to Chivas and Akpinar in this study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology from August 2023 where they report a patient presenting for medical attention with severe hair loss and nail discoloration starting about three months prior. The patient had started taking a multivitamin complex, which had selenium in it, and the patient was taking this selenium in hopes to protect from the COVID pandemic. Two weeks after starting the supplement, the patient had these hair and nail changes, as well as nausea, as well as weakness, as well as itching on the body. And the patient lost about half her hair in the form of a telogen effluvium. Upon examination, the hair pull test was positive, suggestive of excessive shedding. This particular study by Chivas and Akpinar is available free online. Do check it out. Punch in Selenium in the supplement as the probable cause of hair loss and nail dystrophy, and it'll bring you to this paper. And you can see the patient's hair loss, as well as the yellowish discoloration in the nails, the subungual hyperkeratosis or thickening, the lifting off or onycholysis. Scrapings were done and they were negative for fungus. There was also redness in the nails, and the patient had blood tests. Most tests were normal. The selenium levels were 1,300 micrograms per liter. Remember the normal is 100 to 200. What's so important to remember is that level of 1,300 micrograms per liter is huge. In those patients in the 2020, 2010 study by McFacuar, with people overdosing on, this, on the supplement that was incorrectly made, the mean selenium level in those patients' blood was 761 micrograms per liter. And here, this patient had 1,300 micrograms per liter. So this is a huge number. Further questioning revealed that the patient was taking 
about 150 micrograms of selenium a day, just a little bit more than the recommended 55 micrograms per day. But the author stated this couldn't possibly account for these high selenium levels. So where is it coming from? So they asked more questions. And it was discovered that she had been eating many different kinds of nuts in handfuls, one or two handfuls every single day. She bought the nuts from an open market, so it wasn't entirely clear, but the authors calculated that she was probably getting up to a thousand micrograms of selenium a day by eating those nuts. And so all in all, the authors felt that hair loss and the nail changes, as well as the other symptoms, were coming from the high selenium levels of 1,300 micrograms per liter. So the patient was advised to stop taking the supplement, stop eating these nuts. And after six months, there was an improvement in the hair and nails. And the authors show very nice photos documenting this increase in density and very nice photos documenting the improvement in nails. The yellow discoloration, the thickening, the onycholysis improved. So all in all, the authors proposed that patients should be warned about high selenium levels in supplements and in their diet, and that when patients present with hair and nail problems, hair and nail problems, hair and nail problems, that we have to be thinking about things that affect hair and nails. Hair and nails are like cousins. We know that many conditions affect hair and nails. Alopecia areata affects hair and nails. Lichen planopilaris can affect hair and nails. Certain mineral deficiencies can affect hair and nails. And here, selenium toxicity can cause telogen effluvium as well as nail hyperkeratosis, onycholysis, redness. So I really like this paper. Selenium is very popular. Patients are taking a ton of selenium. And many of these supplements have 100 micrograms, some 200 micrograms of selenium. It's easy to get high levels. It's important to remember that the therapeutic window is very narrow. So it's easy to overdose. If you're taking a supplement, you're eating a lot of nuts, you're having a well-balanced diet, tofu, pasta, salmon, mushrooms, other nuts, then you're probably exceeding 400 easily. And so we need to be aware of this. And I think this opens the door for us to think a little more about selenium. So we move on now to a study by La Monica in JAD Case Reports, August 2023, titled Desmoplastic Melanoma, presenting as an alopecic patch in a young patient. It's a study that highlights the fact that desmoplastic melanoma can be mistaken for alopecia areata. The reason I like this study is it really highlights some astute thinking by the dermatologist that led to a biopsy that led to this melanoma being detected relatively early compared to when it could have been detected. So desmoplastic melanoma is a rare spindle cell variant of melanoma. It counts for about 1-4% to of all skin melanomas. Slightly more common in males than females, and the mean age of onset is around 66. The authors remind us that early diagnosis is often challenging with these types of melanomas because they're amelanonic, so they're not heavily pigmented. They often appear poorly demarcated, sometimes appearing as a scar. So the authors present a 43-year-old male with a history of pilar cysts, who now presents with a 3cm by 2cm patch of alopecia in the right frontal scalp. And the hair loss was in an area which previously had pilar cysts and had surgical excision of those pilar cysts. Another study, which is free online, JAD case reports, free online, do check it out. Desmoplastic melanoma presenting as an alopecia patch in a young patient. And when you see the picture of the patient, you'll come to realize that that looks kind of like alopecia areata. When you see a patch that's a little more bumpy, when you see a patch that doesn't really have exclamation mark hairs or broken hairs, which not all alopecia areata has. But if you see a patch that 
isn't really responding to steroid injections or topical steroids, you have to have in your mind some alarm bells that say, I wonder, I just wonder, could this be tinea capitis that I'm missing? Could this be trichotillomania? Could this be scarring alopecia like pseudopalad, like lichen planopilaris? Could this be cancer? So the hair loss had been present for several months. Primary care provider had prescribed topical steroid, rightly so. Didn't grow back. Patient was referred to a dermatologist, and the dermatologist biopsied this. And it was confirmed to be a desmoplastic melanoma with the melanoma cells infiltrating and obliterating the hair follicle, leading to hair loss. And the patient was referred for wide local excision, a full-thickness donor graft came from the right supraclavicular region, and a sentinel lymph node biopsy was done, and they were negative. An evaluation of the specimen revealed a final tumor depth of 8 millimeters with a final staging of 2B. So it's a really interesting case. It's incredible to think that this diagnosis came about so readily. What's so challenging with many of these cases, these mimickers, is they're notorious for delays in diagnosis. Alopecia areata is relatively common. 2% of the world will have alopecia areata at some point. And unless you're thinking constantly, is there any possibility it could be this? Is there any possibility it could be that? You'll miss it. And this particular study has such important lessons and that is if a, if a patch of presumed alopecia areata doesn't grow back, or it's bumpy, or it's red, or it's not responding to treatment, we have to have in the back of our mind that this just might not be alopecia areata. Not every patch of alopecia areata will grow back, even if it is alopecia areata. Maybe 60-70% of a patches respond to steroids topically. 90% or so respond to steroid injections. But if it's bumpy if it's irregularly shaped, if it feels like a scar, if it's, if it's lacking exclamation mark hairs, if it's lacking yellow dots by trichoscopy or broken hairs, if it's intensely red rather than pink, we have to think this just might be something else. What's so interesting about this case is that the patient had pilar cysts. And so the patient had reason to have scarring in the scalp if you've ever seen a scalp with patients with pilar cysts that have had many excised, you see all these scarred areas all across the scalp. And it can be really challenging. There's many patients that come in to see me where I'm asked to rule out lichen planopilaris. And the patient has five, six pilar cysts in their life removed. And so they've got five or six scarred patches. And so what you need to do is ask the patient, can you, can you remember where these pilar cysts were, remo were removed and then block those out of your mind, if possible, to evaluate the areas of the scalp which may represent lichen planopilaris or scarring alopecia? The problem is, is that sometimes patients don't know. If you've had one pilar cyst, you'll know, yes, it was right there on the right side. I know because it was so tender for four days or 10 days. But if you've had eight pilar cysts, you kind of lose track of where these are. And this patient had many pilar cysts, had reason to have scarring. And the astute dermatologist picked up an amelanotic melanoma. So it was a really interesting case. Alopecia neoplastica is a phenomenon where neoplastic cells, either benign or malignant, damage hair follicles. And they damage hair follicles, leading to patchy hair loss. These neoplastic cells infiltrate around the hair follicle and obliterate the hair follicle, and the hair falls out. And it leads to a patch. And that can look like alopecia areata. It can look like scarring alopecia. So in primary alopecia neoplastica, there is a local skin neoplasm that's infiltrating the hair follicle, and that can be either benign or malignant. In secondary alopecia neoplastica, there's a metastasis from a visceral neoplasm. And these metastases include things like 
breast cancer, lung cancer, kidney cancer, GI tract-related cancer. The primary alopecia neoplastica includes things in the skin that are moving into the hair follicle, angiosarcomas, hemangioendotheliomas, pagets, amelanotic melanoma, desmoplastic melanoma. They're on that list, as well as a variety of benign conditions, serangomas, trichoepitheliomas, nevocellular nevus neuromas, nerve sheath myxomas. But amelanotic melanoma and desmoplastic melanoma are on that list of primary alopecia neoplastica. And the authors remind us that most cases of alopecia neoplastica, where neoplastic cells enter into the hair follicle area and cause hair loss, are from the visceral cancers. And primary alopecia neoplastica is much more rare. And they remind us in their discussion that there's four cases in the literature of patchy alopecia that looks like a scar. And some of the cases were red-looking. Some of them looked like alopecia areata quite closely. Some of them looked like discoid lupus. Some looked like lichen planus. And so we just need to have that in the back of our mind. And alopecia neoplastica should be considered in patients with an unusual scarring alopecia or an alopecia areata-like presentation that fails to respond to treatment. So a patch of scarring that's red, whereby you can't really see many classic trichoscopic findings of lichen planopilaris. There's no perifollicular erythema. There's no perifollicular scale. It doesn't seem like discoid lupus. I'm not picking up the follicular plugging. I'm not picking up the follicular red dots. It doesn't appear like the alopecia areata. There's no exclamation mark hairs. There's no black dots, yellow dots. When you have a situation where it just doesn't seem like classic, then alopecia neoplastica enters your mind. And so I thank the authors for this really nice study. So we move on now to talk about eyebrow thinning, a nice study in the Archives of Dermatologic Research, July 2023, titled Comparative Study of the Efficacy and Safety of Topical Minoxidil 2% versus Topical Bimatoprost 0.01% versus Topical Bimatoprost 0.03% in the treatment of eyebrow hypotrichosis. So eyebrow thinning is common. And I would even estimate that eyebrow thinning is becoming even more common in the past several decades. I don't think any good studies have been done, but eyebrow thinning is incredibly common in the world. And yes, there are styles of tweezing that were popular many decades ago that lead to eyebrow thinning. And there's other issues like trichotillomania and uh, thyroid disease and other issues. But there's really an epidemic of eyebrow thinning in the world. I think it's incredibly common. And treatments have begun to be studied, and we'll talk about some of these. We have minoxidil, we have bimatoprost, we have all these serums including lash serums that can work for the eyebrow. Castor oil probably does something for the eyebrow. But what we need, of course, is comparative studies so we can generate evidence and we can help patients understand the safety, the affordability, and the effectiveness of the treatments they use. So there's been considerable interest in trying to understand what treatments work best. And minoxidil and bimatoprost and latanoprost have received quite a bit of attention. In 2012, a nice study in the Journal of Dermatology was published looking at bimatoprost 0.03% compared to 3% minoxidil. Individuals in that study applied minoxidil 3% to one side and bimatoprost 0.03% to the other side. And you may know bimatoprost 0.03% as Latisse. So this study in the Journal of Dermatology suggested that minoxidil and bimatoprost were pretty similar in their effectiveness. It was a small 16-week study of 27 patients. 51% in the minoxidil group had an increased eyebrow hair density, 59% in the bimatoprost group. In terms of patient satisfaction, 44% in the minoxidil group felt pretty satisfied, and 40% in the bimatoprost felt pretty satisfied. So all in all, pretty similar between 
Metoprost 0.03% and minoxidil 3%. So now we have a somewhat similar study by Zaki and colleagues in the Archives of Dermatologic Research. The authors here set out to compare the benefits of minoxidil versus bimatoprost. And here they compared minoxidil 2% gel compared to 0.03% bimatoprost gel compared to 0.01% bimatoprost gel applied once daily for 16 weeks. And so there were 20 patients in each group applying these once per day. Standard photographs were taken. Trichoscopic eyebrow assessments were carried out, and eyebrow growth was evaluated on a four-point scale, one being very sparse, two being sparse, three being full, and four being very full. So 20 patients in each of these three groups, 60 patients total. The mean age was similar across these three groups. The eyebrow density was pretty similar in all three groups before starting. And the key take-home message is that the outcomes were fairly similar. The improvement in this one to three scale was similar in these three groups, being around two. The change in eyebrow diameter was around four micrometers in the bimatoprost 0.03% group. Same with the bimatoprost 0.01% group. Same with the minoxidil 2% group. There was about five to six more eyebrow hairs, somewhat similar across the groups. And in terms of patient satisfaction, on a scale of 1 to 10, pretty similar, but the 0.03% bimatoprost group had a score of 8 compared to 6.8 for the bimatoprost 0.01% group and 6.6% for the minoxidil group. And it was statistically significant that the bimatoprost 0.03% group was higher than the other two groups. All in all, patient safety was pretty good. So a really interesting study that complements the prior studies in the literature comparing bimatoprost and minoxidil for eyebrows teaches us that outcomes are pretty similar. Remember, this study had 2% minoxidil as the comparator. The other study I reviewed in the past from the Journal of Dermatology had 3% minoxidil. We don't know if 5% minoxidil would be more effective. We don't know if bimatoprost and minoxidil would be even more effective. But all in all, side effects were low. The medications were well tolerated. When one thinks about minoxidil being possibly less expensive than bimatoprost, the fact that they're similarly effective means that maybe a patient could save a lot of money by using minoxidil instead of bimatoprost. But this wasn't a study in cost-effectiveness. It was a study of, of in effectiveness. One must remember this was a study of females. This was a study lasting 16 weeks. So we don't know if males would respond the same way, and we don't know if the results would be the same at week 52 or week 522. This study stopped at 16 weeks. But all in all, a really nice study. And so when I see patients with eyebrow hypotrichosis, I'm constantly thinking about, should we start minoxidil? Should we start bimatoprost? Should we start both? Should we start minoxidil twice a day? Can the patient do twice a day? Should we alternate bimatoprost and minoxidil? Should we apply bimatoprost and then minoxidil, or minoxidil and then bimatoprost? We don't have those good studies, so there's a bit of unknowns, but most likely there's some degree of, of additive benefit, but those studies have not been done. But what we can conclude from this is that there is merit to prescribing minoxidil and or bimatoprost in the treatment of eyebrow hypotrichosis. I really like this study. These are these are nicely done studies. Randomized controlled trials, 20 in each group, good uh, evaluation in terms of the number of eyebrows, trichoscopic changes, patient satisfaction. These are the way good studies are done. So we move on now to a study by Orsillo and colleagues. Jad Case reports in August titled Second Row of Eyelashes with Lower Extremity Edema. 
Diastachiasis comes from the Greek word di meaning two, and styx or stikos meaning row or line. And so this particular syndrome that the authors are teaching us about in this particular JAD case reports is lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome. Diastachiasis is this abnormality of the eyelashes whereby the second row of eyelashes emerges from the meibomian glands. And it occurs due to metaplasia, the metaplastic transition of sebaceous glands into pilosebaceous units. And metaplasia is this process whereby one type of mature tissue is replaced by another type of mature tissue. And we see many parts of the body, including the GI tract, whereby, for example, chronic irritation and inflammation leads to metaplasia. So metaplasia is a phenomenon that is well-known to pathologists and well-known in pathophysiology. And so this lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome is a syndrome where patients present with two rows of eye, lashes, and lymphedema. Now, diastachiasis can present congenitally, like in this lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome, or acquired. So chlamydia trachomatis, or trachoma, can lead to diastachiasis as well in an acquired manner. But Orsillo and colleagues here report a 71-year-old male with this lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome. Examination of the patient showed two rows of eyelashes. The second row of eyelashes was emerging from the meibomian glands on the upper and lower eyelids. The patient said that he'd had this entire life. Free online. Check it out. JAD case reports. Punch in second row of eyelashes with lower extremity edema, and you'll see this very nice report. It's helpful to check it out when you see diastachiasis the first time. Your brain will say, something's different here, but it'll be hard to process exactly what's abnormal. And then you go back and compare what eyelashes look like, and then you go back and look at the eyelashes of someone with diastachiasis, and you realize... Okay, I see. I see where the where the double row is coming from. But spend some time looking at that JAD case reports article. The authors show the nice photos of the eyelashes and the bilateral lower extremity edema. The patient also had a daughter with this lower extremity edema, lymphedema and diastachiasis. And so this is the lymphedema. Diastachiasis syndrome, Greek di meaning two, stick, steaks, meaning row or line in Greek. It's a rare condition, but 94 to 100% of patients, the authors teach us, with lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome have diastachiasis. It can be found at birth or develop soon thereafter. The eyelashes may or may not create any problem. But 75% of patients do have keratitis, conjunctivitis, photophobia, but not all do. The lymphedema can affect the lower extremity, can affect the legs, can affect the genital area. And it usually develops in the 20s and 30s. And by 30, most patients do have this lymphedema. There's quite a list of conditions that have lymphedema, and so it's important to be aware of that. There's a differential to that. But certainly lymphedema, diastachiasis syndrome is in there. There's many reports in the literature of lymphedema, diastachiasis syndrome, and it's not clear what abnormalities go along with it. There's been reports of congenital heart disease, atrial septal defect, ptosis, varicose veins, cleft palate, spinal epidural cysts, renal anomalies, double uterus, recurrent abortions. And, of course, there's not enough studies to know is this coincidence or is this part of lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome. The diagnosis can be made by confirmation of FOXC2 mutations. 
the condition is inherited in an autosomal dominant manner, but it has variable penetrance, meaning it's possible that a person has lymphedema diastichiasis and tells you that my parent does not have this. The parent may have it, but it may not present in the exact same manner as the child because of the variable penetrance. So we go on now to a study in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology in July titled Seasonal Trends in Hair Loss, a big data analysis of Google search patterns and their association with seasonal factors. I really like this study. I am fascinated by seasonal shedding. It's a subject that I feel is real and is part of my practice. And by being aware of seasonal shedding, you'll come to practice differently. Your patients who are doing so well in March, April, May, and June, and you're just, oh, everything's going great. And then they phone you in August and September, and they're just shedding. Something's not working. I need to see you. If you don't have seasonal shedding in the back of your mind as at least a possibility, it'll be confusing. And you'll be changing medications because you'll feel like, okay, yeah, you're right. The treatment treatment's not working. Let me check your iron. Let me check your thyroid. It's not working. Let's start something else. Let's start oral minoxidil. Let's start PRP. Let's start something. But when you realize it's seasonal shedding, for example, your advice to the patient is, let's not do anything different. The shedding stops. The patient is happy again in November, December, January, February. Seasonal shedding is really important to know about. And so the authors of this study evaluated Google Trends in how humans punch in the word hair loss in the United States over the period 20... 2004 to 2020, and there were significant differences in interest in the word hair loss across various months. The highest interest was August, followed by September and July. The lowest searches for hair loss occurred in April, followed by February and December. So it's an interesting study. It, of course, doesn't prove these are the months with seasonal shedding, but it it proves that interest in hair loss is intense in August, that human beings in the United States want to know something about hair loss in August. And that's not August during the COVID pandemic. That's August dating back to 2004. So there were six other studies in the literature that are important to be aware of, and they show similar data. And that is that there's this peak of shedding in August, September, July, October, somewhere in the late summer, early fall. And the studies are pretty consistent. And there may be a minor peak in human beings in kind of March or April. So is there really a fall shed? Well, it seems that humans really do shed more in the late summer and early fall. We don't know why exactly, although there's some pretty good theories. It's thought that Perhaps changes in sunlight and changes in temperature lead to changes in the hypothalamus of humans that in turn impact shedding. We're not surprised because animals have molting patterns. And we know that molting is controlled by endogenous and exogenous factors. Temperature and sunlight have a major impact on molting in animals. What's so interesting is that seasonal shedding really wasn't thought to exist until the late 1960s, when dermatologist Orentreich, who contributed so much to our field, recognized seasonal shedding in three women in New York who had maximal hair fall in November. And Orentreich also proposed a second peak of shedding in the spring. But that's when it first came to be recognized that maybe we have this seasonal shedding pattern in humans. An important study in the British Journal of Dermatology in 1991 by Randall and Ebling titled Seasonal Changes in Human Hair Growth really played a key role in getting this field of understanding seasonal shedding going. It's a fascinating study of 14 men age 18 to 39 in Sheffield, UK, whereby they collected beard shavings, shed hair, 
finger and toenail clippings every 28 days for 18 months. And as we'll see in these five studies that I'll describe, there's some pretty meticulous, classic hair studies. Every 28 days, hair samples were taken from five areas on the scalp. Participants were asked to record the number of hours they spent outside. This is a lot of work. So men in this study reported spending more time outdoors in the summer than in the winter, about 30 hours per week in June and July, compared to 11 hours in January or February. And the authors found that the proportion of hairs in antigen, or growing, sticking to the scalp, peaked in March, and they fell steadily through September. So the best hair likely in March, and then diminishing through September. When the authors examined bags of hair that patients brought in, they found that maximal shedding took place in August and September, and shedding was the least in March. And shedding in August was about double that of March. 1996 saw the study by Courtois and colleagues periodicity in the growth and shedding of hair, again in the British Journal of Dermatology. This Courtois study from uh, L'Oréal Laboratories in France was, a, was another one of these great studies. Ten patients over 8 to 14 years, and the authors used phototrichograms to document the percentage of hairs in telogen phase. In 9 of 10 subjects, there was a link between sunshine hours and the percent of hairs in telogen. And the authors found that late summer and early autumn, August, September, October, were the periods of the highest telogen hairs. And December, January, and February were the periods of minimal shedding. Pierard Franchimont and Pierard had a very nice study in the International Journal of Cosmetic Science, 1999, the actinic telogen effluvium. Another one of these incredible studies. 2,857 subjects over two years. They found an increasing proportion of telogen effluvium happening in July through October and the lowest rates in January. Kuntz, Seffert, and Trube published a nice study, Dermatology, 2009, titled Seasonality of Hair Shedding in Healthy Women Complaining of Hair Loss. These authors examined shedding patterns of 823 women using trichograms. These are huge studies. The authors found that telogen rates were lowest in the beginning of February, and they were highest in July. And there was a second peak in April. 823 patients. These are big studies. And what I also liked about this study is the authors showed that seasonal shedding occurred regardless of whether the patient had female pattern hair loss and regardless of whether they were using minoxidil or not. Liu and colleagues published a study in the International Journal of Cosmetic Science 2014 titled Changes in Chinese Hair Growth Along a Full Year. They studied 41 male and female volunteers from China and again used phototrichograms to look at the percentage of telogen hairs. And they showed that the highest percentage of telogen hairs was in September, lowest in January. And finally, another study in the British Journal of Dermatology in 2018, which is very similar in the design of the Buontempo study that I just reviewed. This was a study by Sang and colleagues titled Seasonality of Hair Loss, a Time Series Analysis of Google Trends Data. So when I looked at the Buentempo study, I was immediately reminded of this 2018 BJD study by Sang and colleagues. That study supported that people seem to be more concerned about hair loss in the summer and fall than in the winter and spring. And so when they looked at Google Trends in that study, looking at the term hair loss, they found that searches in the summer were much more frequent than the spring. Searches in the fall were runner-up. And spring seemed to be the least entries related to hair loss. So now we have this seventh nice study of 
Seasonal Shedding, Buen Tempo and Colleagues, J-E-A-D-V, July 2023. Do check it out. Very interesting study. And I congratulate the authors for keeping this subject of seasonal hair shedding going. There's something very special about the uh, the months of July, August, September in the Northern Hemisphere where humans shed. So that's it for this week. That's it for this season. We talked about some very interesting studies in the last few months. We talked about a very nice study by Chivas and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology looking at a patient that took too much selenium and had hair loss and nail changes. And when she stopped eating nuts and stopped her selenium supplement, she had a remarkable improvement in her hair and a remarkable improvement in her nails. And we talked about some prior studies in the literature documenting what happens to human beings when they get too much selenium. I think it's really important and it fuels further studies for us to all be thinking about how much selenium are we going to recommend? It has a narrow therapeutic index. And if a patient has a well-balanced diet of meats and vegetables and nuts, and nowadays many people are eating nuts, and now you add on a selenium supplement or a multivitamin supplement packed with selenium, you very well could be overdosing. Then we talked about this very important study of primary alopecia neoplastica, a study of desmoplastic melanoma. LaMonica and colleagues in JAD case reports tell us of this patient presenting with a patch resembling alopecia areata, but the biopsy showed desmoplastic melanoma. Then we looked at a study by Zaki and colleagues comparing minoxidil to bimatoprost in the treatment of eyebrow hypotrichosis. What was the winner? Well, they were all pretty similar in terms of growth of eyebrows, improvement in thickness of eyebrows. There's a slight increase in patients liking the bimatoprost 0.03%, but the results were pretty similar. And we answered the question, what happens when you go in to see a patient with two rows of eyelashes and swelling in the legs? Well, you may be meeting a patient with lymphedema diastachiasis syndrome, a genetic condition due to mutations in FOXC2. And then we talked about seasonal shedding, a study by Buontempo in the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Vernariology in July, which reminds us that something very special in the Northern Hemisphere about the months of August and July and September, where human beings are shedding. And we reviewed six studies from the literature which support this concept, some of them being large studies with elegant studies with phototrichograms and getting patients to bring in bags of hair. And these are classic studies, important for hair specialists to know about these wonderful studies and how much information can come from this type of study design. Before I say goodbye, let me remind you, if you're a hair loss practitioner, perhaps a dermatologist or a hair transplant surgeon or you're a family physician or a cosmetic physician, or you're a trainee in dermatology, a registrar or a resident, or a plastic surgery fellow, or you're a fellow in hair loss somewhere in the world and you'd like to dive in and learn more about hair loss with me, you might consider applying for the Evidence-Based Hair Fellowship Training Program. We start in January. We meet virtually once a week, either on a Wednesday or on a Thursday. From January 2024 through to August 2025, 87 weeks, it's a fun and intensive program which molds participants into a hair loss expert. It's a unique program that trains participants how to solve problems, how to think critically inside the box and how to think critically outside the box. Solving problems will be very much a part of this program. And the hope is that some of this type of thinking will become second nature to you when I say goodbye to you at the end of the program in August 2025 and we prepare to welcome our next group in January 2026. Details about the program and everything you need to know are found on the Donovan Medical website at donovanmedical.com forward slash donovan-hair-academy or on the YouTube channel Donovan Medical. And for those of you that are interested, we will be having a series of question and answer webinars September 
October, and November. September 6th, 7th, 27th, 28th, October 18th, and November 16th are the dates of our webinars. If you'd like to attend a question and answer webinar and have some of your questions answered, but you can always email us as well. Deadlines are December the 1st, and the details about how to apply are found on the video on the Donovan Medical website. And that brings us to the end of Season 5. I want to thank everyone for joining me this past summer for another season of the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. I thank everyone for your interest. I thank everyone for joining me each week and the tremendous growing interest in the podcast. I, I really am happy that it helps people, and I appreciate all the emails that we receive and the comments that, that you give. And I look forward to seeing you next fall. We'll be back here in October, and we'll be together in October and November and December. Evidence-Based Hair Podcast ends each year with the top 20 studies of 2023. And you'll see online when that particular webinar is. That's an open webinar for everyone. And I look forward to seeing you there as well. That's a wonderful year-end celebration of some of the top studies of the year gone by. And we'll talk more about that in the fall when we begin season number six. Thanks so much for joining me this past season. I look forward to seeing you in the fall. Bye for now, everyone.